Good afternoon. It's great to be here today for this important announcement. Today, Alberta's government is taking more action to protect the vulnerable from sexual assault and exploitation by introducing Bill 14, the Provincial Court Amendment Act. This bill will reduce the risk of victims of sexual violence from being re-victimized during a trial. It would also help to ensure that all people who come into the courtroom are treated respectfully and fairly. For victims of sexual violence, a courtroom setting has the potential of creating anxiety and uncertainty amongst many other feelings. Anxiety because they fear that sharing their personal story, especially in a public setting, could recall the violent experience and terrible memories to which they've been subjected. And uncertainty because they don't know how they will be treated or how people will perceive their experience of violence. A courtroom must be a safe place for victims. It should never be a place where people are re-victimized or where they feel like they're, they're themselves on trial. The trauma that survivors live with is real, and those who come forward for justice should not ever be re-traumatized. And this is why it's so important that all judicial environments, including courtrooms, are accepting and kind to those who enter them, especially those who've experienced sexual violence or exploitation. Because all Albertans deserve a justice system that is unbiased, effective, fair, and respectful. A justice system that has listened to and understands the needs of victims. If passed, the Provincial Court Amendment Act would require Provincial Court judge applicants to complete sexual assault law and social context issues education before they are eligible to be appointed. This would build public confidence in the administration of justice. And by making the justice system more responsive and better equipped to support survivors, it could even uh, encourage more reporting of sexual assaults so that offenders are held accountable for their actions and brought to justice. This proposed sexual assault law education requirement for provincial court judge candidates builds on that. It's something that uh, my friend, the Honorable Rana Ambrose, first proposed as a private member's bill at the federal level in Parliament back in 2017. And I want to thank uh, Rana for joining us here today. Her continued advocacy for this important issue ensured that a bill was ultimately passed into law in Ottawa requiring sexual assault training for federal judges. This requirement will now apply to provincially appointed judges here in Alberta once this law is passed. It will equip provincial judges with the knowledge, awareness, and skills to avoid being influenced by attitudes, perhaps based on stereotypes or prejudice, prejudice, and to avoid mistakes where survivors have been re-victimized by our justice system. A, a bit on how the process will work here. Those wanting to apply after this legislation would come into effect would need to take the education before they're eligible to be appointed. Provincial court candidates already on the appointment eligibility list when this legislation comes into effect must make a declaration either to complete the education before they're appointed or to agree to complete it after their appointment. Existing judges on the court right now can take training on these matters through the continuing professional development and education programs available to them. So Bill 14 is yet another part of this government's broader effort to protect vulnerable women and children from exploitation and violence. That includes our nine-point action plan to combat human trafficking that we highlighted earlier this week with the release of the report of our Human Trafficking Task Force. It also includes a passage of Claire's Law in 2019 that allows Albertans to be informed if their intimate partners have a violent criminal record. 
and it includes investing in the expanded use of electronic monitoring technology to help prevent criminals serving sentences in the community from having contact with their victims, often victims of, of abuse and violence. We've also provided for a 20% increase in funding for sexual assault service centers to, pro to provide assistance uh, to victims as they navigate through the justice system. And uh, we've also improved the training of medical staff and police personnel in the collection of evidence of sexual assault, while ensuring wider availability of sexual assault evidence lists and allowing victims a third option to preserve evidence for a period while they decide whether or not to file a formal report. We're also funding a telehealth uh, link to ensure that there is 24-7 access uh, to specialists in sexual assault and increasing funding by $50 million over four years to the Alberta law enforcement response teams with a special focus on the Integrated Threat and Risk Assessment Committee that combats domestic violence and stalking. We also passed a Bill 28 in the, uh, about a year ago, which prevents convicted sex offenders from being able to change their names and hide their identity. And we're supporting the Alberta Joint Working Group on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, while supporting Indigenous women and girls through the Victims Services Family Information Liaison Unit. So these uh, that I've just listed are some of the measures taken by this government to protect the vulnerable and to combat, combat sexual assault and exploitation, taking another important step today with Bill 14, thanks to the inspiration of uh, Ronna Ambrose. And I now would like to invite Minister Shandro uh, to offer some more details. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Premier. And uh, as Premier indicated, uh, this bill reflects a commitment to Albertans by this government. Someone's circumstances shouldn't determine how they're going to be treated in a courtroom. And the educational requirement for lawyers who want to become judges strengthens that. By ensuring that folks who become judges are trained to be aware of social context issues, they'll be able to create an atmosphere in our courtrooms for vulnerable Albertans that is more comfortable, or at the very least, less frightening when they have to participate in our court proceedings. And I expect this bill will benefit both those who are speaking and those who are listening, and it will aid all Albertans in our justice system. So thank you very much. And uh, Minister Isaac, the sponsor of Bill 14, will now say a few words. Minister Isaac. Good afternoon and thank you. I'm very proud today to be able to bring this bill forward in the chamber. As we all know, a well-functioning justice system is key to safe communities, but also a healthy and well-functioning society and democracy. The courts are an integral part of this, as are judges who are in charge of their courtrooms, including the overall conduct of and the experience within the courtroom. The life experiences, circumstances, and perspectives of those who come to their courts, either by choice or requirement, can be varied and complicated. When victims of sexual violence are involved in trials, they arrive in court having been traumatized. It is imperative that they and their families not be re-traumatized. Trials are almost always nerve-wracking experiences for those who are testifying, for victims, for vulnerable Albertans, and for those who are not familiar with court processes. They are also very nerve-wracking for the families of victims. 
This bill is intended to help build confidence in our justice system by making sure judicial applicants are educated not only on sexual assault, but more importantly on social context issues. By providing a safer environment for victims and their families within our courtrooms, we will ensure that there will be more reporting of sexual assaults, which ultimately will lead to the prevention of sexual violence. And I think we can all agree that that is an important goal. And now I would, uh, with great gratitude, like to introduce the Honourable Rana Ambrose, whose work, uh, tireless work on this issue, um, has made this bill possible. Thank you, Minister Isaac, uh, and thank you, Premier Kenny and Minister Shandro, for including me in this announcement. I wish I could be there in person, um, but thank you for allowing me to join you virtually. I would say that this is a milestone moment uh, in the reform of one of our most important institutions, our justice system. So I, I really want to thank all of you for your leadership on this issue and for making this legislation a priority. As you know, I've, and you mentioned, I've worked with others to pass a similar bill at the federal level, and this now applies to federal judges. And we also passed a bill like this in PEI and now in Alberta. So it's, it's very important that provinces pass this type of legislation to ensure the victims of sexual violence can come forward and seek justice with the confidence that they will get a fair trial, free of bias and free of mistakes. And it matters more so that provinces adopt these laws because they deal, as you know, with the most sexual assault cases. You know, people often ask me, why make this particular training, sexual assault law training, mandatory for lawyers who want to become judges? Why not other types of training? Well, it's, it's simple, actually. This is the only area of law where we see the level of complexity in the law that leads to mistakes by judges and where we continue to see and hear bias and rape myths that judges bring into the courtroom with them. These legal mistakes and these type of bias erodes the confidence the victims have in our system and denies them a fair trial. And importantly, it's the crime that's the most underreported. Now imagine you've had your car broken into or your house broken into, your bike stolen or someone mugged you, you can't wait to get to the police station to report it and seek justice. And that's not what happens in the case of sexual assault. In fact, one in three women in Canada will experience sexual violence in their lifetime, but only one in 10 will actually report it to police. And when asked why, according to a Justice Canada report, they will say it's because they have no faith in our court system. So when judges make mistakes in the law or allow rape mythology in their courtrooms, it has serious consequences for victims and it denies them a fair trial. Knowing that lawyers who want to become judges to oversee this important, these important institutions have to take this type of training, I think will help build confidence in our justice system. And Premier Kenny said it, why do we need to do that? So more women report their sexual assault to police and feel confident they'll get a fair trial. So it's not about tipping the balance in favor of the victim. It's about competent, fair trials, free of bias and free of legal mistakes. And I'll just give you an example. In 2018 alone, in Alberta, three trials were overturned upon review because the judges who presided over those trials made mistakes in the law. 
So not only will this training ensure judges apply this complex area of criminal law fairly and without error, judges will also understand how to manage their courtrooms to ensure the use of rape mythology, which importantly is not allowed under the law, does not happen. And I'm confident this will make a difference. In the UK, this type of training has existed for over a decade, where judges cannot oversee a sexual assault trial until they've received training in what's called their rape ticket. And I'll lastly say sexual assault survivors, as Minister Isaac said, deserve to know that judges who oversee their trials are fully educated in this complex area of law and aren't going to make mistakes that will cause long lasting damage and further trauma. So let's hope this small yet meaningful step builds more confidence in our justice system and encourages more women to come forward and report their crimes to police. I'll just add one more thing. I think it's really important when we identify problems in our institutions that we seek to reform them or they will lose the trust and confidence of the people that they serve. And that's what you're doing here today. You found a problem in one of our institutions that is meaningful and you're reforming it. And I know it'll make a difference. So my hope is that all MLAs will vote in favor of this bill and it sends a very positive message to survivors of sexual assault. So thank you for including me and uh, thank you for your leadership on this issue. Thank you to all of our speakers today. We're gonna move to our media Q&A. We'll start on the floor here. Go ahead, Audrey. Hi, um, question in French uh, at the beginning. Um, I'll, I'll ask it in English for a benefit of everyone. Um, you're presenting this bill today, but there have been questions about how your government handles allegations of sexual harassment by employees, and you commissioned a human resources report to look into the misconduct by government staff. Uh, I want to know where, what were the findings in Jamie Pytel's report? So English and then French? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, we, as I outlined, this government has taken more action than I think any government in Alberta history to combat sexual exploitation and violence. Uh, through the measures I articulated and many more today, the introduction of Bill 14. One of the measures that we introduced is mandatory respectful workplace training through a program developed by um, Sheldon Kennedy and others that has now mandatory obligation for all MLAs, political staff, and members of Alberta's public service. Uh, that's something we implemented uh, two years ago. Um, and uh, with respect to uh, concerns about misconduct in the legislature, uh, that work, potential workplace harassment issues. We did commission a review by an independent uh, consultant who is with expertise in this area, Ms. Patel, and uh, we have not yet received the final report, uh, to my understanding. I look forward to receiving that and uh, to taking on board any recommendations she may have on how to improve processes for reporting so that people know uh, exactly who to go to and that they can have a confidential and secure way of making complaints about inappropriate uh, and disrespectful workplace conduct. Um, alors, ce um, gouvernement pris plus de mesures que n'importe quel gouvernement de l'histoire de l'Alberta pour protéger les Albertains du, uh, de l'assaut, de, de l'exploitation sexuelle et de harcèlement. Et euh, je vous avais donné toute une liste des actions que nous avons prises à cet égard. Mais euh, davantage, nous avons mis en place une formation obligatoire euh, pour tous les députés 
les euh, personnels politiques et tous les fonctionnaires dans les fonctions publiques de l'Alberta euh, pour euh, un lieu de travail respectueux. Alors, euh, euh, également, nous avons, euh, euh, nous avons donné un contrat à un consultant avec expertise dans cette question de, euh, des, euh, de harcèlement pour donner l'avis au gouvernement de comment on peut avoir les, les meilleures balises et procédures à l'intérieur de la législature pour, pour les plaintes potentielles. Nous n'avons pas reçu le, le rapport final, mais j'ai hâte de le recevoir et de mettre en vigueur les recommandations pour améliorer les processus pour les plaintes en ce qui concerne un lieu de travail respectueux. I don't know if this is working. Okay, different topic completely. Um, the idea of a provincial police force in Alberta, urban and rural municipalities association, as well as two unions are staunchly opposed to this idea. Are you still going forward with it and why in face of such an opposition? Well, we are going forward with detailed consultations uh, with Albertans based on the uh, expert report that was developed on a potential uh, Alberta Provincial Police Service. Uh, we will listen respectfully to uh, all views that are that are expressed on this. Um, I, I'm not at all surprised that the RCMP union would be opposed to this because they'll lose millions and millions of dollars of union dues uh, that would otherwise go to fund their salaries and their operations. So yeah, of course, the union's going to defend the union's interests and the union bosses are, they want millions of, of dues. That's their understandable focus. Our focus as a government, though, is on the best possible policing to keep Alberta communities safe. And I think there's a strong argument to be made that al rural Albertans deserve the same kind of community policing that Edmontonians and Calgarians have with their municipal police services, that Ontarians, Quebecers, and Newfoundlanders have with their provincial police service. Uh, we have faced a serious crime, a, a serious wave of rural crime in recent years. And uh, while we respect and appreciate the good work of the RCMP and their professionalism, uh, there, are, there are some structural problems. Uh, often the local depots are understaffed because the federal government has not invested enough in, in its training and recruitment program. And uh, typically, uh, junior RCMP officers are cycled in and out of communities uh, never really been able to sink down roots, uh, and uh, which is necessary to have high-quality community policing. I think there's something to be said for a system like Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland, uh, Calgary, and Edmonton have, where a young Albertan growing up in a town like, like Wetaskiwin or uh, Leduc could dream of serving their community as a police officer, be trained in Alberta, and go back and serve the community that they grew up in for the rest of their lives, a community that they understand, where they understand the geography, the local culture, and, and uh, who the bad guys are. And, and uh, that kind of community policing is better policing than a constant revolving door of personnel. Uh, and so, uh, additionally, I would ask people to actually read the report and not just respond to the pressure tactics of the union that's trying to preserve, protect its dues for the union bosses. Um, the report r recommends a holistic and very progressive model of policing, which uh, would offer, uh, for example, built into the police budget and to the Alberta Provincial Police Service, psychologists, social workers, uh, drug treatment and addictions treatment counselors. Um, it would provide for the first time ever 
in Canadian history, permanent set-aside governance boards on a civilian police commission for Indigenous people. It would be an opportunity to start fresh and move beyond some of the uh, concerns about systemic racism in policing um, to actually give First Nations a shared governance role in, in a provincial police service. So um, I get that there are some people that want to defend millions of dollars of dues, but our job, again, is to address some of those issues around uh, better rural policing, community policing, a better social supports through the policing service, and a bit more involvement of First Nations in provincial policing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. En français. Uh, I'll try to do a summary on that. Uh, okay. Um, nous croyons que c'est un avantage d'avoir, en principe, un service policière uh, raciné dans les communautés comme ils ont au Québec, en Ontario et le Terre-Neuve, comme ils ont à Calgary et à Edmonton. Uh, on a vu une vague de crimes dans les régions ruraux dernièrement, et en partie, ça c'est parce qu'il y a une uh, rotation perpétuelle dans le personnel du GRC, uh, c'est une uh, agence policière nationale, et je crois qu'il y aura les avantages d'avoir une agence de policiers uh, communautaire où les, les gens locaux puissent servir leur communauté comme un officier de police en permanence dans leur communauté avec euh, l'implication des, euh, des psycholo psychologistes, euh, avec l'implication euh, dans le modèle de, gouvernement, de gouvernance euh, des communautés euh, des Premières Nations et communautés autochtones. Alors, je crois que c'est vaut la peine de le considérer. Je comprends très bien que le syndicat de membres de, de, de GRC, ils veulent protéger leur argent, ben, ça c'est naturel, mais l'obligation du gouvernement est de s'assurer le meilleur modèle de, de policier que possible. As well. Oh, sorry, and the Solicitor General would like to add to that, sorry. Because I, I was there at RMA and, and uh, at AUMA and listened to those municipal leaders, what I heard loud and clear from the municipal leaders is support for our local RCMP officers who are on the ground keeping our community safe. And, and I agree with those municipal leaders. This isn't a criticism of or an attack on, on those local uh, swarm members. They're doing a fantastic job doing the hard work and keeping our community safe. We have, a, have agreements with the federal government, not with the RCMP, but with the federal government for contract policing. They happen to provide us with the RCMP. Through those contracts, and, and I actually met with the division commander for Division K today, this morning, and I, I highlighted for him, just so he's aware, what our concerns are as a, as a government, that we right now have a, a provider who is exempt from, um, from provincial legislation and uh, exempt from the, the typical police governance that we would see in, in our, our local police commissions for where we're not contracting out with uh, the federal government. So for the complaints process, for civilian-led selection process, for detachment commanders, civilian-led oversight and accountability for police services in our communities, that's good police government governance. And that's what we, we do need in our communities. Um, and I, I think we need to make sure that we are working with our municipal leaders to make sure that that's, that's where we're going as a province. We're in the middle of, of now consulting on and modernizing the Police Act. If we're doing all this hard work, we've got to make sure that this is applying to all of our police services throughout the province. And as Premier said, we've got to make sure that we have a say on, on training. 
um, having training that's in Alberta and having recruitment. We're happy to have folks from all over the country to be able to come to Alberta for any job, including policing. But when they do come here, we want to make sure that there's fewer transitions so people aren't transitioning out to be able to progress in their careers. We've got to make sure that when it comes to forensics, that we have tiered forensics and, and tiered labs that they're in Alberta, it's not all outside of Alberta, and it's not triage on a national basis. There, there are quite a few things we got to work on as a province to make sure that all of our communities are getting the same level of service and, and same type of governance that we would expect anywhere in this province. Now, Audrey, we'd like you to say that in French, Tyler. Oh, désolé, mon français, s'il vous plaît, désolé. Thank you, Minister. With that, we're going to go to the phones operator. Can you please put through our first caller? Thank you, Josh Aldridge, Calgary Herald. Uh, thank you for taking my message. Uh, this, this is on a different topic, but uh, uh, Premier Kenny, you, you said previously there is nothing the province can really do to enforce the savings of lifting of the provincial gas tax from being passed on. Uh, I've spoken with analysts that point to the volatility of the market, which has prevented a change in price at the pumps when uh, the gas of WTI has dropped from its high point. What certainty can you give Albertans that this, that they will actually see a difference on Alberta or on April one that the price of gas will be ten thirteen cents cheaper uh, than what they currently are experiencing? Well, thank you, and uh, I, I would like just checking the price of WTI right now one hundred and eight dollars. Uh, I would love it for it to be a 13% cut on April the 1st. Unfortunately, Justin Trudeau's 25% hike in the Liberal NDP carbon tax means that the 13-cent reduction in the Alberta fuel tax will, uh, won't be seen fully because, uh, you know, we will we'll provide people with 13 cents of relief per litre. Trudeau will take 3 cents of that. So on average, across the pumps, it should be about, uh, we should see prices go down by about 10 cents on uh, Friday morning. We'll be watching that like a hawk, and we send a clear message to the gas retailers that uh, we won't accept any games being played with this. If, if they don't pass on these tax savings, if they try to pocket a portion of that, uh, we will be prepared to resort to using legal tools to in protect consumers, and we're open to potentially bringing in regulatory power uh, to uh, compel uh, retailers to pass on that savings. So we're going to be watching that like a hawk. I, I would just say this, though, that most of those um, gas retailers out there, they're mom-and-pop businesses, they're family-owned retailers, and I think they, they want to be good uh, local businesses and pass on the savings to their uh, customers in their neighbourhoods. Um, and um, and there's also competitive pressure. You know, I, I, one of the reasons I'm a free market conservative is because you end up with lower prices than if, the, than if you end up with distortions of government fixing the price. So let's let the market work here. We'll, we'll watch it very closely. And let me just say that... Um, uh, the 13 cents a litre reduction for the Alberta fuel tax starts uh, at 12.01 a.m. on Friday, April the 1st. Uh, if that carries on on an annual basis, it would be worth about $1.4 billion of consumer savings. That's very significant, but we've got to watch out uh, for the Liberal NDP carbon tax because they're not just hiking it by 25%. On April Fool's Day, they want to increase it by another 400% over the next eight years. Do you have a follow-up, Josh? Yes, on that, because uh, the market has fluctuated so rapidly uh, over the last few weeks due to what's happening, quite a bit happening over uh, in Ukraine. How, how, how are we going to balance that out? 
by what's charged at the pumps, if, if the prices are fluctuating greatly, is there a way to actually show that and protect that? The NDP is calling for uh, an independent audit of gas prices. Is that the stuff that you guys are looking at taking? Well, we will be informally auditing that. The Department of Finance will be closely tracking the actual pump uh, price at the pumps. But, uh, look, l- l- I think what we'll do is benchmark this against where the prices are in the rest of Canada. We do have, fortunately, the lowest gas prices in Canada. I've, in many pl- parts of Alberta, we're at slightly over buck sixty a litre. That should go to slightly over buck fifty a litre on Friday. Um, and that compares to some areas that are, that are spending two, $2 a litre or more. So we'll be able to watch that differential between the Alberta price and the price in other parts of the country where they do not have governments cutting uh, the fuel tax. But on the NDP's idea, that is just the phoniest thing I've ever heard. The NDP actually wants to increase the price of uh, gas and fuel and electricity and everything because they are cheering for their ally Justin Trudeau's 25% increase in the carbon tax on April Fool's Day. And they're also cheering for his planned 400% increase. Let's be clear, the NDP in Alberta, like their cousins in Ottawa, in their coalition with Justin Trudeau, they don't think people are spending enough on gas, electricity, home heating, and groceries. They want to make all of those things more expensive. This is not some political line. This is their stated policy intention. That's the whole darn point of their carbon tax. It's to push people into energy poverty. Because, as Ms. Notley says, she wants people uh, taking the bus. Well, there aren't, there aren't buses in most parts of Alberta. And uh, they, they, they perversely want to punish people for consuming energy. The gig is up. People are now starting to catch on. And I hope that uh, the next time Canadians and Albertans go to the polls, they will say a hard no to the pro-energy poverty, pro-inflationary carbon tax policies of the Liberals and NDP. Thank you, Premier. Operator, can you please put through our next caller? Thank you. Dan Singleton, the Albertan. Uh, Yes, this is for the Premier. Um, uh, Back to the Alberta police uh, proposal. Um, Are you planning to do a referendum on that uh, issue with uh, Albertans before moving ahead? We have not decided. We're at this stage. We're doing this uh, deep consultation, and uh, we'll, we'll see what we hear back. Uh, it's very important for us to hear from regular Albertans as well as municipal governments and First Nations uh, as we uh, determine the next steps. Uh, but let me just say this. Um, I'm, I'm disappointed that this has become a, a point of, of controversy when I think it could be a point of, of unity in our province. You know, if a, a provincial police service serves Ontarians, Quebecers and Newfoundlanders well, why can't it serve Albertans well? Why do we have to have our provincial police service run out of Ottawa? Why can't we have provincial police commissions on behalf of uh, a provincial police commission on behalf of civilians overseeing the operations and the governance? Why can't we have provincial laws for comp- police complaints apply uh, to a provincial police service? Why can't we have First Nations representatives on a civilian police commission, something that will never happen with the RCMP? Why can't we have a situation where young Albertans can grow up and serve their community to keep it safe? without being transferred to New Brunswick and British Columbia and Manitoba? Why do we have to put up with a constant revolving door of personnel as opposed to a more stable uh, community model of policing? So these are the questions that we're asking. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's a reason why the city of Surrey, 650,000 people, 
just uh, decided to set up its own to um, end the RCMP service contract and set up their own municipal police service. It's the same reason why Edmonton and Calgary and uh, five other municipalities in Alberta have their own local police service. It's the same reason why two-thirds of the Canadian population are served by provincial police services. Um, it's more local, it's more community-based, it's more accountable, uh, and, uh, and I think those are all strong arguments that we'll, uh, but we'll put these things out for consultation. I see Minister Shander would like to add to that. I'll just add this, that um, it's important for us to remember that the Alberta Provincial Police was actually created, uh, gosh, 105 years ago next month, I think it was in April of 1917, that it was actually created. Um, no, it um, was uh, defunct in the, the 30s, um, but, but we've had an Alberta Provincial Police before, and I think that's an important context uh, for us to remember. Dan, do you have a follow-up? Uh, no, that's fine, thank you. Thank you. Operator, please put through our next caller. Thank you. Tyson Fedora, CTV. Hey, Premier, sorry, once again, uh, another off-topic one here, and if Ron Ambrose actually wants to chime in on this as well. Uh, yesterday in the House of Commons, Alberta MP Rachel Thomas did, uh, uh, said that many Canadians would link Trudeau to the definition of a dictator. We saw him in European Parliament last week, uh, chastised by a few members there as well. So, Premier and Rana, do you, either either of you think the PM is or has elements of his leadership that look like a dictatorship? Well, look, at the end of the day, the Prime Minister is uh, elected because he has uh, the most seats in the House of Commons, and he is bound to the our Constitution, which requires an election at least once every five years. So Canada is a parliamentary democracy, although... Uh, it's clear to me that his government has, you, has been too willing to use extraordinary powers, and the Emergency Act would be a good example of that. It is the successor of the War Measures Act. Basically, it's a version of, like a version of martial law, and it was brought in to deal with some people illegally parked on roads and highways that was totally disproportionate and unnecessary. And unfortunately, when a, when a government uses extraordinary powers like that, designed for mass insurrections or a period of warfare, when they use that to apply to some illegal road protests, uh, unfortunately, the, it, it raises the temperature and people are going to say uh, things like that. So that's why Alberta's government uh, is challenging the, uh, the use of the Federal Emergencies Act in court we are seeking intervener status to support the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Constitution Foundation in their legal challenges of the uh, application of the Federal Emergencies Act. So, uh, and we continue to call on the federal government to drop pointless uh, COVID-related travel restrictions that are just empty political theater and not public health policy. So, um, I, to sum up, I would say, look, Canada is, uh, for all of the, the flaws and imperfections in our system, we are a parliamentary democracy. We do have uh, constitutional limits on government power. We have an independent judiciary, which is what we're talking about here today. Um, it, but the federal government has, I think, used been too quick to use extraordinary powers and in so doing to undermine public confidence in government. That's a shame. Do you have a follow-up, Tyson? Yeah, if Ron wants to just add to that, but uh, I'll say something just in regards to the Premier as well. Uh, you've also been called a dictator over the last two years. Is this type of language uh, needed for, for Canadian politicians? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot has been said through COVID that uh, has 
ramped up people's uh, tempers, un- perhaps sometimes unnecessarily. I, I understand that, uh, though, and people get emotional. I'm pretty sure if you go back and look at my comments in the House of Commons as an opposition MP, I might have referred to uh, previous majority governments as, quotes an elected dictatorship. And, and that's a comment that even political scientists have made about the very strong powers that exist in a, in a Westminster majority government. But at the end of the day, it's still elected. And, um, you know, I, I think we should all seek to avoid using language which uh, diminishes uh, the very real uh, pr- reality of um, totalitarian regimes. And, uh, you know, I disagree with Justin Trudeau on the vast majority of issues. I think he's been too quick to use extraordinary powers like the Emergencies Act. Uh, but for all of that, I, I think it would, it's unhelpful and corrosive uh, to suggest that, that he operates like, let's say, uh, the president of China or the president of Russia or Venezuela, for that matter. So um, this is a parliamentary democracy. And if people don't like what the government's doing, this government, Trudeau's government or any government, they can head to the polls and change the government at the next election. Thank you, operator. Can you please put through our next caller? Chris Varco, Calgary Herald. Hi, Premier. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, uh, answer the question just about the assessment, or your assessment, rather, of the impact of the new federal emissions plan that was released yesterday upon the province's economy and on the jobs. I think your, uh, your environment minister talked about the potential loss of 13,000 jobs in the oil patch. And I guess, it is a tie to that, what do you make of the industry's cautious response to it? so far. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I think the proposed plan is uh, a bad joke. It was, it looks like it was made up on the back of a cocktail napkin by this former Greenpeace radical, Stephen Guibault, with zero uh, reality or consultation with the provinces or the industry that is so critical to reducing carbon emissions. It, you know, if the federal government wants to be taken seriously on climate policy, then it needs an actually serious climate policy plan. And you can't develop that by unilateral imposition from Ottawa without ridiculous targets that are totally unattainable. You know, there's not been, since Chrétien went to Kyoto in 1997 and promised to get, what was it, seven points below the 1990 baseline, um, Every single Canadian government has failed to come even close to meeting emissions targets. And what is Ottawa's response? To come up with increasingly unrealistic emissions targets that will not be met. That doesn't help their credibility. doesn't get us any closer to actual substantial emissions reduction. And all it does is to scare away investment, which kills jobs. So this is, ex- this is what you get with a liberal NDP coalition and, an, and a Greenpeace extremist as the environment minister. Uh, they're operating on a different planet. We, yes, we need to reduce emissions, but we need to do that in a realistic and practical way that does not devastate our economy, kill hundreds of thousands of jobs, and drive up the cost of living to make it unfo- unaffordable for people to live normal lives. The implication of the targets they announced yesterday without consultation with provinces or industry would be devastating for the Canadian economy and for the cost of living. While we're already living through a 30-year high in inflation, six, nearly 6% inflation, uh, 
So I know that, that for the, the fancy cocktail parties that people like Stephen Gibo and uh, David Suzuki hang out in, they don't really care about the cost of living. But ordinary Canadians do, and they're saying enough already. Canadians are opposed to just the 25% increase in the carbon tax on April the 1st. But really, the implication of the Gibo policy announced this week is what Environment Canada said in a study several years ago, that you need a carbon tax of $400 a tonne to achieve the Paris targets, and now they're shooting beyond the Paris targets. Let's be clear, that would be a 1,000% increase from where it is now. The average uh, family with a $70,000 income in Alberta is right now spending about 600 bucks. Uh, on the carbon tax at a $40 a ton rate. If this goes to Gibo's preferred $400 a ton rate, we're talking about the average family spending, what, $6,000 in uh, carbon tax costs? Are you kidding me? So I, I just think Mr. Gibo and, and the Trudeau, Liber, the, the Liberal NDP government have just blown their credibility when it comes to climate policy with that report yesterday. Do you have a follow-up, Chris? Yeah, I just want to go back to the question, though, what do you make of the industry's cautious response to it? And when we're talking about the jobs, what conversations have been had with the federal government in the last few months or, or the last year about their just transition plan for employees who may be impacted by the transition? Uh, as far as I know, no conversations. Uh, I find the whole concept of their so-called just transition for workers offensive. It's a, it's a fancy political slogan for putting hundreds of thousands of people out of work. You know, there's half a million Canadians whose jobs are connected to the oil and gas industry, 800,000 whose jobs are connected more broadly to the energy industry. And they're good paying, often blue-collar jobs. One of the reasons that we avoided, like, the devastation of the U.S. Rust Belt is because, you know, those workers with automation and globalization ended up with their communities being devastated. In, in Canada, people who lost their jobs in the industrial heartland or BC forestry, Newfoundland fishery were able to come to Alberta and make good, often six-figure jobs. The greatest engine of social mobility and progress in Canada has been the high-paying jobs in Alberta's oil and gas sector, particularly for folks in blue-collar occupations. And they want to crush that with their so-called just transition. Meanwhile, I'll tell you what the just transition is for Vladimir Putin's Russia, Drill more, produce more, ship more, and fund more of their war machine. So I would have thought that the radically new context of, of energy politics and energy security following Putin's invasion of Ukraine might mug Ottawa with reality and cause a rethink about Canada's long-term role in global energy markets. Instead, they're still talking just transition. The only transition, the only energy transition that Canada should be focused on right now is transitioning the world off its dependence on dictator oil to, towards reliably produced democratic energy. Thank you, Premier. We're going to take one more question from the floor, and then we'll go back on the phones. Hey, Travis McEwen, CBC News, Edmonton. This is on Bill 14. Oh, good. This is an off-topic question. Thank How you. is this going to impact um, judges who are, you know, already existing right now, and their education when it comes to sexual assault, what will they be required to do? Minister Shandro? That's a great question. We, we, and, and we considered that when we were drafting this. We wanted to make sure we were respecting the independence of the court, and so we are not requiring anybody who's currently um, appointed to the bench 
Um, and I actually spoke at length about this with uh, Chief Judge Redmond yesterday, and he appreciated our, our respect for judicial independence. Um, and uh, he talked at length as well about a lot of the, um, the training that he and, uh, and other organizations, national organizations, help provincial court judges with their, their training on an annual basis and uh, opportunities for, for them to provide uh, social context training for, for their, uh, their colleagues. So we're, it's not, not, not a requirement in this bill. For those who have already gone through the process and going through the, the, the council and then the, the provincial uh, committee nominating um, uh, those who might be eligible on the list. Um, we're, we're not requiring all those folks to be get kicked off the eligibility list and then go through the process again, but we are asking those folks to um, either get the training before they're appointed to the bench or undertake to have the training after they're appointed to the bench. So we're not kicking any folks off that eligibility list, and that's how we're going to, to deal with those folks. Tyler, can, can I just make another point? Uh, mm -hmm. as, as Rana and I know very well as former federal ministers, um, the... The federal government can appoint provincial court judges without going through the federal uh, judicial advisory appointment committee. So this is doubly important. It's important to the Alberta bench, but it's also important because there will be future promotions from the Alberta uh, provincial court to the Court of Queen's bench and the Alberta Court of Appeal. And uh, this will ensure that they have the, the, that this additional training at the earliest uh, point in their, in their judicial uh, tenure. Do you have a follow-up? Being said, will the provincial applicants be taking the same courses as the federal, or will there be a, a provincial training per se? Will it be different in that regard? No, no. There's, there's no. Well, we often have a lot of overlap in what's, what's provided, but uh, there's, there's no requirement on, on it for the provincial training on it being the same as the national training. It's just that folks have to take the, the training. Then it has to include social context training and sexual assault. I think Minister Isaac also has a comment. Oh, on yeah. That. So with respect to the training piece, um, there are a number of um, organizations and stakeholders that uh, are outside sources providers for training, Law Society, Bar Association, uh, the National um, Judicial, um, Judicial Institute uh, provides training services for sitting judges. Um, the, the piece for the, that we're bringing in now will be developed uh, between all of these providers to ensure that they've got a fulsome piece, both on, on the points of law with respect to sexual assault as well as the social context piece. Thank you, Ministers. Operator, can you please put through our final caller? Thank you, Dylan Short, Post Media. Uh, hi there. Um, in regards to training, we know that obviously the, the system, the judges are just one part of that. So I was wondering if this government is looking at or, or is already you know, implementing similar training to other parts of the system, whether that's police forces within the province or lawyers within the system or, or any other sections along that system, because we know that it's not just the judges, at least for that one in 10 reporting. Oh, great question. So first of all, I'll start with the Law Society. They, they do provide, uh, we, we do self-regulate as a profession, and so that is through the Law Society. And the Law Society has been, um, I, I put that question to them. I know that they've had a lot of, conversations, um, the, the board of directors of the Law Society, we call them benchers, have had a lot of conversations internally about how we, we provide that type of continuing education to, to those of us who are members of the society. And uh, so great question for the Law Society that I'll punt to them. When it comes to policing, that's a great question as well. And so we do provide some oversight through the, the policing standards on what we expect uh, from 
uh, from our police services, th those that are um, uh, that fall within uh, the, uh, the our legislation. So those, the the policing standards um, does provide some some framework. Um, great question on, on whether the the standards right now are are clear enough about the type of um, uh, education we we expect from from those who become sworn members in in the uh, the province. Um, uh, but uh, there 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 at this time isn't. Uh, a review of the standards, but uh, good question. I'll I'll, um, I'll ask the the ministry to look into that. Do you have a follow up, Dylan? Yeah, I guess just to follow up on that, then I guess we'll, would you be open to committing to maybe mandating or or doing a review of the policies along that system? And then just a, a clarification as well. While I, I'm on the line, um, I guess just you know, given if, if everything goes according to plan and this passes through, I guess how quickly can we have this training mandated for for the judges? Sorry? Do you want to answer that? Here, I'll, I'll maybe come on. It's anticipated that if uh, everything goes as planned, that we should uh, be able to have training pulled together within about a six-month period of time. Um, again, uh, Minister Shandro mentioned um, uh, how uh, training will proceed with respect to those already on the eligibility list, as well as those who may be appointed to, to be judges in the near term. Um, but it's anticipated that because there are um, providers out there that are currently providing some pieces of this education, that we should be able to pull much of it together for in about a six-month period of time. Justin, could I just see if, uh, since Rana has been waiting patiently on the line, if she has any comments on these questions that we've had? Sure. I mean, I would first start off by saying that this type of legislation is a real balance because... You know, Minister Shandra made the point that we, we, we really shouldn't, as you as legislators, ask judges to do things or direct judges to do these things. There's a constitutional issue at play. So we're coming at it from a different angle. Um, we hope the judges that are currently sitting on the bench will take this training, and a lot of them are very open to it and have already taken it. And frankly, this level of transparency does give a little bit of pressure on sitting judges to think about taking the training if they haven't yet. But we're approaching it from a different angle and saying, if you're a lawyer and you want to become a judge and you want to be part of our justice system, we want you to take this training. And we've indicated all the reasons why that's important. So this is the way to do this without affecting the independence of the courts. And that's important. I would say on the kind of training that it's available, there's actually very good training available. And um, Minister Isaac mentioned there's a number of organizations that do this. And it's important that the government not say what the training should be. It's the Law Society and the Judicial Institute that will decide what the best training is for judges. And they do that already at the federal level. And they have a very comprehensive program. Um, so it is there. It, the, the issue is that it's not mandatory. And when it's not mandatory, we have too many people slipping between the cracks, ending up on the bench and making serious mistakes that re-traumatize victims and lead to, frankly, reputational issues in our court system. So, uh, again, I just want to thank the Premier and the Ministers for doing this. Um, it's really important. And I would just end by saying there are a number of times when I've heard the, the, I've heard the criticism from lawyers who say, I don't want to take this training because it'll expose me as someone in the legal community who wants to become a judge. And I would say to them, I understand that. But I would also say that even if you don't become a judge or you're not appointed, um, it'll make you a better human being. So I encourage you to take it and accept this legislation as an important reform in the system that you want to be a part of.
Thank you. That concludes our press conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Rana. Appreciate it. Thanks. Congratulations. Thank you very much.